it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Wow. The insecurity level with you guys is ridiculous. Welcome back into the Electronic Labyrinth with Luke Littleboy and me, Fletcher Walton. Thank you for joining us for 90s Comedian Part 2, our second investigation into the comic colossuses that topped the box office when comedies ruled the earth. This issue we're focusing on a multi-hyphenate who for more than two decades has run several careers simultaneously. It's Ben Stiller. He's the franchise superstar of Meet the Parents, Madagascar and Night at the Museum. He's the founder of the short-lived but successful influential Vaughan Ferrell Wilson Brotherhood that dominated Hollywood comedy at the beginning of the century. He's the tragic comic lead, championed by Noah Baumbach. He's the self-effacing patron, who's provided big breaks for Jack Black, Patton Oswalt, Steve Coogan, Danny McBride, Richard Ayoade, Kristen Wiig and half a dozen other of our favourites. He's the cameo king, who's lent credibility to Freaks and Geeks, Undeclared, Arrested Development, Workaholics. But in our opinion, he's above all, as we'll explore over the next 90 minutes, an exciting, acerbic satirist who quietly revels in reflecting the ghastly indulgences and inconsistencies of the American entertainment industry back to itself. As should be said as well, uh, he, he's the son, of course, of, of Arthur Stiller. Jerry Stiller, the father of Ben Stiller, who in the uh, 60s and 70s had um, uh, an entertainment partnership with his wife Annie Mira, who actually uh, is Irish Catholic but converted to Judaism to get with Jerry. I can imagine the conversations. you got to do it! <laughs> um, <laughs> Jerry played Arthur Spooner in King of Queens... And Ben yeah. cam- eventually cameoed as Jerry Stiller's dad, I think. <laughs> yeah, he did yeah. Uh, in, in King of But the point I was trying to make, really, is that he had something of a showbiz upbringing. Um, and that's not insignificant. You know, I, I do wonder mm. if that's, that's fed part of his uh, mindset as, as a satirist. And with so many of the films, and we'll touch upon this throughout the Ben Stiller show, right the way through to Zoolander and to Tropic Thunder, he's often lampooning the media uh, showbiz, you know, in some way. And I do wonder if it was that upbringing that, that was that was part of that. And he, he has talked about, you know, late nights, hotel rooms and, you know, a perfectly happy childhood, not an unhappy one, but certainly not a normal one. Um, yeah. And I thought, I did think that was significant. But uh, yeah, the Ben Stiller show itself was, I, I think, I mean, thank you in part for suggesting the ben, uh, ben Stiller as, as a topic of conversation because I hadn't watched a single episode. You know, it was really before my time. Yeah. So it aired on MTV uh, very early 90s, 1990 to 91. Uh, but then Fox, 92 to 93. Um, you know, both runs, it only lasted a, around a dozen episodes. Um, but of course, the amount of talent that came out of it is not insignificant. I mean, I'm watching Better Call Saul at the moment on uh, Netflix, the latest season. Bob Odenkirk, of course, came out of um, the Ben Stiller show. Uh, Judd Apatow was credited as co-creator and was something of a showrunner on the show. So, you know, th- th- these are these are big names that, b- that have really shaped a lot of comedy um, and, and drama even today. Um, I think one of the interesting things for me on the Ben Stiller show, it's cutting edge stuff. This is interesting. There's no studio. Um, it, it's, it's really shot all on film, mostly on location uh, and, and high production values. There's no laugh track. So compared to SNL, 
you know, it's a sketch show, but it feels incredibly different. And of course, the most interesting thing, which is this this direct through line that you'll then see into his pictures, we can talk about that in a minute, is the intercutting between sketches, where you've got shaky cam, uh, you know, a handheld camcorder, with Stiller talking directly to camera as himself, commenting on the show, maybe the previous sketch with writers, cast members, often writers and cast members coming in and just being really critical of the show, the last sketch, yeah. and still are being really bummed out that they didn't like it or they didn't think much to it. Okay, that was that was funny, Amish studs. I thought that was pretty good. It was, you know. It's kind of funny if you enjoy picking on really peace-loving, defenseless people. I kind of had a problem with that, and that's what I wanted to discuss with you. Why don't you just talk to my agent, okay, Janine? That bit for me is is the really interesting part, but there's other there's other things that, that tropes from, from Stiller's career that you see. So... You've got like the U two documentary uh, uh, sketch where it's the early years of U two, and they interview their manager who uh, really loves the guys, but Bono's trying to make out that um, it's uh, the manager was terrible and didn't believe in them and this kind of thing, <laughs> uh, and they end up playing a bar mitzvah which Bono takes incredibly seriously, for example, and I think you see this this style of sketch goes right the way through to the nineties when in for the MTV Movie Awards, he was doing stuff with uh, as Tom Cruise's stunt double for Mission Improbable, which was the, a Mission Impossible 2 skit. I think with the Ben Stiller show, this whole, I, I mean, you call it meta, don't you, these days? A show within a show and lampooning not only showbiz, but his own show and his own writers, his own sketches, uh, I think really does take us right the way through to Tropic Thunder, where you end up with the, the opening trailers, for example. Yeah. Yeah, he's had a consistency in approach for actually his entire career. It goes back further than 30 years because the first thing for which he gained any acclaim was the hustler of money. Ben Stiller was, as we said, he comes from a showbiz family, although I think there's a distinction to be made. Um, They were New York showbiz rather than Californian showbiz, rather than Los Angeles, Hollywood. And uh, they were showbiz in the same way that Paul Thomas Anderson's father, Ernie Anderson, was showbiz in as much as... Uh, they knew comics and other entertainers, but it didn't necessarily mean that there was affluence. And mm. there certainly wasn't at the, the same level of comfort which we might imagine would come from, for instance, Gwyneth Paltrow's mum is Blythe Danner, her father's Bruce Paltrow. Mm. Moneyed, established, successful Hollywood people in the 70s and 80s. And what would another good example of that be? I suppose maybe Dakota Johnson, you know, when your old man's Don and your mum's Melanie Griffith. But it was different for the Stillers. Um and there's, there's a more hard-scrabble New York kind of show business to their background. Anyway, Ben became an actor in the 80s. He's in Empire of the Sun, for instance. That's where he gets that germ, the seed mm. of the idea that becomes Tropic Thunder decades later. Um, and he's in Fresh Horses, and that's adequate. A couple of other small roles in various relatively obscure 80s pictures. Uh, Hot Pursuit is a good one with Johnny Cusack, and I think Jerry's in that as well. But mm. Ben Stiller was essentially a young jobbing actor finding his way um but one of the earliest things that he gained acclaim for was the hustler of money which is a color of money pastiche with john mahoney who later starred in reality bites as the paul Mm. newman character for the first time but not for the last time as we've said ben stiller playing tom cruise in the color of money but it's the hustler of money and instead of pool halls it's bowling alleys and that um uh dedication to affectionate pastiche and parody began there. I think it was about 87. And off the back of that, eventually, Stiller, in the early 90s, very early 90s, found himself writing and working for Saturday Night Live for a matter of weeks 
as Dennis Miller says in the Ben Stiller show, uh, he stopped there for a cup of coffee. It was a very short period of time, but in contrast to Odenkirk, who'd been, who was there for years and years, to great acclaim. Um, Stiller was making his own short films, short parodies, off his own back with uh, through connections that he made as an actor. Mm. Um, and I'll take us through a very brief history of the complexities of how the Ben Stiller show came to air on Fox. It was first an MTV show with a different format with Ben and his writing partner, Jeff Kahn, supported by Harry O'Reilly and John F. O'Donoghue, all of whom have appeared throughout Stiller's filmography and were also present for the second iteration of the Ben Stiller show. The first time they did it on MTV, it was at a time when um, people may be aware that Donald Logue, Dennis Leary, uh, Colin Quinn, all had bits on MTV in the very early 90s because MTV Mm. was interested in bringing in comics to talk between the videos, and they called this a vidcom. So this, the original Ben Stiller show on MTV was Ben and Jeff making a television show, proto-Larry Sanders, it should be said, and Judd Apatow later went to... Many of these people went to later work on Larry Sanders. As Luke said, that lasted about 13 episodes. Uh, then Ben and Judd went to HBO to pitch a different idea entirely for everything that would come between these short films that Ben was making. Like, as Luke said, the... Uh, U2 impersonation, the Bruce Springsteen yeah. impersonation, as a, and I'll go through some of those in a moment. And HBO liked the idea of working with Apatow and Stiller, but didn't much go for the concept. So they asked them to come back with a different concept. Then they greenlit the show. And now we're getting closer to its iteration on the Fox network. But then the odd thing, which was difficult for me to understand, because I've got the DVDs, they're HBO, they're produced by HBO. But at the time, HBO was increasingly concerned with making what we consider now content, I suppose we call it content, wouldn't we? They wanted to make content at their own studios, but then knock it out to other networks. And so that's what happened. HBO greenlighted the Ben Stiller show, but sold it to Fox. So now Ben and Judd are working for HBO, but know that they'll be screened on Fox, which is a bit strange Mm. for them. They went through several changes of format. At one point, uh, the interstitials between sketches were to show Ben arriving in Hollywood and living in a big house with Andy and with Bob. Then they went to a second concept where it was uh, anchored by him at a club. And then the final concept was, as Luke said, was no concept, which I think works fantastically. And then they've got the Fox show. They've got the new format. They punt it out. They do 12, 13 episodes. Fox cancels it. And then it wins at Emmy. I found out about all of this to begin with. I don't have any anecdotes in real life. I think in about 15 years, seven things have happened to me. But this, so this counts as an, uh, uh, as my version of an anecdote. Literally 20 years ago, I'm in sixth form, and off the back of the cable guy, I was interested in who those people were. And with Janine, I could find out truth about cats and dogs. Uh, we all went to the cinema for Mystery Men. That was a big event for us. I've been trailing that to my pals for ages. That it was Janine Stiller. William H. Macy, Hank Azaria, who was essentially my one of my favourite actors. That's one of the reasons I went to see Godzilla as well. Um, so it was easy to track down stuff that Janine was in. And Andy, I found news radio, late night Channel 4. Um, I think it was summer of 99, my GCSE year, but maybe during sixth form two. Repeats of that at one in the morning, two in the morning. So I'm recording that two or three at a time off the telly watching those the next day. So I knew where to find Andy. And then he came up in a cameo in Road Trip. 
think he's in Dude Where's My Car as well, though I wouldn't advise anybody to watch that. And Ben was everywhere, and off Sky Movies I could see him in Heavyweights and Happy Gilmore. And there's something about Mary. In 98-99 he's beginning to get his own picture, Zero Effect by Jake Kasdan. So I'm in my, uh, in my school's library, in sixth form, uh, using my free periods to voraciously skim IMDB and out of interest in the cable guy and Ben Stiller and knowing that I should like Reality Bites I find the Ben Stiller show and I know I know Andy's name, I know Ben's name, I know Janine's name who's Bob Odenkirk and what kind of name is that? It sounded made up to me and I couldn't find anything involving Bob he's got a cameo in Wayne's World 2 but of those four central cast he was uh, Little did I know at the time, but he was primarily a writer through the 80s and 90s, so he wasn't on screen much, and I was fascinated by him, and clicked from his name to find Mr. Show with Bob and David. Again, what is that? I saw that David Cross was in it, and he had a cameo role, uh, or a bit part, I suppose you'd have to call it, because he wasn't famous enough to have cameos. He had a bit part in Cable Guy, and again... Who's Bob Odenkirk? Who's David Cross? Why don't I know these people? However, the people in Mr. Show, like Marilyn Rice Cub, like Sarah Silverman, they're appearing in stuff that I'm watching, like there's something about Mary. And I knew I needed to get hold of this, but this is 2000, like, uh, late 99 or spring of 2000. I've no capacity to find where the fuck to get Mr. Show off from HBO. Uh, and I waited... Uh, my third year of university study was at San Francisco State in California and that's when I was finally, after three or four years waiting, able to get my hands on first Mr. Show, which was revelatory to me and involved all the people I loved. And then later that year, uh, the release was about December 2003 in the States, maybe I got it a couple of weeks afterwards, finally, the entire Ben Stiller show from the Fox Network, made by HBO, released on DVD. Uh, and then it was as though the circle was complete and I finally was getting my um, was getting an understanding of Bob Odenkirk and I think even above Stiller I think Bob might be my favourite American comic talent of the last 30 years more than Conan, uh, more than Bob Smeagol, more than the Sandman I think it's Bob Odenkirk, I think he's the one I have the kinship with David, David, you know the rule put a nickel in the swearing jar Oh, shoot. <laughs> Folks, we have a fun new rule here at Mr. Show. Every time a cast member swears, they have to put a nickel in the swearing jar. The money goes to Swears for Cares, a non-profit organization committed to raising money through swearing. So, so hopefully, we'll make a little difference. A little fucking difference. <laughs> Bob and David, raising money as part of the Mr. Show TV Ministry family group. And now it's time for Swear to God with the Reverend Winton Dupree. I have a question, and I know you all have it too. What is up Satan's ass? All he wants to do is fuck us up, the dick licker. Now the Lord said, I am the light of the world. Now, he could as easily have said, I am king shit of fuck mountain. Why would you fuck with me? I'll speak briefly as well on some of my favourite sketches from the Ben Stiller show because re-watching it at the beginning of this year, the first couple of episodes uh, are a mixed bag. 
mm. to the extent that you could forgive someone if they didn't continue. And from there, mm-hmm. it, they were genuinely gaining momentum by episode six or seven. It's, it's really good, really good. Mm. Most of the sketches are a smash. And it um, reminded me what a terrific comic actor Andy Dick is. Now, the bloke has had substance abuse issues from the jump and has spent most of the last 20 years uh, drunk or on pills or in court for um, uh, kind of, if we can say it's minor, just ridiculous sexual assault charges. He continually flashes people, licks them, gropes their tits, uh, like on live television, not just like backstage or something. But anyway, it's a bloke with a lot of problems. And um, Ben stuck with him. He gave him a tiny role in Zoolander 2 and is wrote Mugatu for him uh, in Zoolander, but Andy wasn't able to take that role. And reports suggest that Andy Dick has now come out of this very, almost two decade long stretch of um, personal difficulty and is now sober, which is great news. But uh, yeah, watching him in the Ben Stiller show, he's really funny. And it's such a shame that after five or six years, by the end of the 90s, he's uh, crippled by all these vices. He's, um, He's behaved... This bears speaking of as well. He's um, he's the man that got Phil Hartman's wife back on coke. For anyone that doesn't know, obviously the, the, Phil Hartman's wife, you know, went on to to murder him you know, when she was then on on, on um, high. So yeah, um, oh, that a- absolute tragedy. Um, Phil Hartman, who, uh, for my money, there are a few more. I mean, in in Phil's personal life, apparently he was reserved to the point of coldness. Um, but as a comic performer and as a writer and originator of comedy, there was there are a few people of greater generosity and warmth. Um, I suppose some people might not know, but he's Troy McClure. He's Lionel mm-hmm. Hutz. Uh, he co-wrote Pee Wee Herman as well, the original Pee Wee Herman film. Mm-hmm. And I, I know him, if not from this, uh, if not best from The Simpsons, then certainly from his role on News Radio, one of my favourite sitcoms. And him and Andy worked together on that. Um, I think it's worth noting that, in spite of the car crash that has been Andy's life for 23 years, I suppose. I think he's really fucking funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, he is. It's, it's, it's he, such he, a shame. It's very sad to watch those early Ben Stiller shows where everyone, everyone looks young. Uh, and, mm. uh, you know, the, the 90s, an interesting time because there's the underlying cynicism in everything. Uh, you know, reality bites, you know, it goes straight through to that. The voice of Gen X or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Clearly, you know, so much youthful energy and creativity brimming in, in, in that cast and clearly you, in the writer's room. You really room. feel it, don't you? You really yeah. feel it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go through some of my favourite sketches. I just I, I do want to hammer home the point, though, that already, even at this early stage in their careers, it didn't take 20 years to look back and say uh, that was an all-star cast. It was more like, by 95, you could say, God damn getting Bob, mm. one of the best writers of comedy at that time, not in retrospect, at that time, having worked with Conan O'Brien and Saturday Night Live, originating Matt Foley. And I'll mm. tell you, my favourite Bob Odenkirk joke, it might be the first one that he ever got on Saturday Night Live, was um, was this. It's for Weekend Update, and it's either Dennis Miller or Norm who says, the statute of limitations for admiring Bob Hope for his previous works runs out this week. But where were we? Oh, yeah, some of my favourite sketches from it. And um, Dave Cross, Brent Forrester, Judd Apatow, Dino Stamatopoulos, who I think most people who listen to this will know from Community. And all these are people that have overseen 25 mm. to 30 years of comedy. The ones that best represent what Stiller went on to do 
are low-budget tales of cliched horror. It's a tales from the crypt pastiche. The production design, the values of it, and uh, the filmmaking of it are so far above what other people were doing at the time. The painstaking eye for detail to nail the parody properly. And there's also uh, Janine is really good in B-minus Time Traveller. Come on, Stacy, shake those cobwebs loose. July 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. September 12th, 1941, a day that will live in... Come on, General Carter, they both sound right. How could you forget the day Pearl Harbor was bombed? Well, it's like super easy to cheat in that class because I had this friend, Stacy, we had this system rigged where you would write it on your arm. She was always the one who asked, why do we need to know this stuff? Well, now she has her answer. Uh, Legends of Springsteen, as you've you talked about you too, didn't you? But there's some good Legends of Springsteen stuff. Oh, the legend, Legends of Springsteen <laughs> stuff is fantastic. He must have been up there for like 15 hours. He played every song he ever wrote, but that was nothing, right? After he's done playing, he grabs a pail and mop and starts washing the floors. I mean, he was really scrubbing. And if that ain't enough, he refills all the ketchup bottles. And the next morning when I woke up, I had been freshly shaved, manicured, and my shoes had been polished. And they called James Brown the hardest working man in show business. And some of this, it, it, it's unsurprising, it's predicated on the impressions that Ben can do, and those impressions are essentially anyone with a slightly high forehead and dark hair. So he can mm. do Bono, Cruz, Springsteen. But um, that's not to say that the show is entirely oriented around Stiller. B-minus Time Travel is a great little role for Janine Garofalo, who, again, when I was in... When I was getting into this, she was among my favourite, yeah, my favourite actors working at the time. And I think that, man, if she'd come out 15 years ago, she would have been Tina Fey. If she'd come out eight years ago, she would have been Amy Schumer. Mm. In a way, it's that classic case of the first one through the fence always gets a little bit bloody. She didn't really get the uh, career that she deserved. We'll go back to some of this stuff. Having said that, you know, all of these people... Um, the through line is from Ben Stiller show. Most of these people went on to work on the Larry Sanders show and Mr. Show with Bob and David and News Radio and Dr. Katz. There was an amazing cohort of American satire in the 90s, which is as enjoyable, if not as incisive, as what we got with the day-to-day -day lot with Coogan, Iannucci, Chris yep. Morris, Lee and Herring. We're really, if you were into comedy in 1995, uh, you were absolutely in clover. Um, but yeah, getting back to some of the other terrific sketches there's a really good one with bob called of buildings and women and it's just on 16 mil camera black and white like a french movie it's bob with a trilby uh, and a cigarette to me uh, every building is like a woman a short <laughs> goddard pastiche in the middle of this thing for maybe 90 seconds it must have cost nothing it's yeah. just him driving around los angeles with the french new wave jump cuts and that's just a little as you say so creative just little idea they had there's also yeah. manson is one of the most famous did you watch that one? No, I didn't watch that one. The Ben Stiller Show did this a few times, and it works. It, it generally works. Finding a pop culture artefact and then barely changing it, but for one important uh, element. And in this instance, it's Lassie, 
with Andy Dick as the dad and Janine Garofalo as the mum. But instead of Lassie being a rough collie, it's Charles Manson. Darn that big old toad. can hear him, but I can't find him. Manson, you lift up this rock and I'll try to shoot him up my knee. Ribbit, ribbit, I was raised in a prison. I don't know any other way. I like it. Prison's my mother. When's dinner? I'm starved. Hold your horses, mister. You got to walk it like you're talking. Wop, bop, bloop, bop, bop, bam, boom. Hush, Manson, I'm fixing dinner. I'll fix brain stew for dinner when I'm the cook, Jack. Shh, what has gotten into you, boy? And where's Timmy? Timmy? I don't know. I got the eye of the tiger, and I don't know who to kill first. You're trying to tell us something, boy. You can lock me up, but you can't block me up. I'm so insane, I'm sane. Good Lord, he's trying to tell us Timmy's in trouble. What happened, boy? Did Timmy have an accident by the lake? Accident? There are no accidents. Don't give me that jive, Jack. There is only the plan, and everything else is Jack. Timmy got bit by a snake, and and the poison's gonna start working soon. Oh, we don't have time. We've got to get there. Show us the way. Show us the way, boy. The most uh, salient point to make about the Ben Stiller show is the um, long-form film parodies he does. Woody Allen's Bride of Frankenstein. It's husbands and wives, but what if they were like Frankenstein's monster, a Dracula, a mummy? And it really works. But the, uh, the filming style is exactly as husbands and wives is. You've got Ben Stiller as Sidney Pollock as... Frankenstein's monster who breaks up with the bride of Frankenstein played by Ben's sister Amy later on in this vignette uh, he's going back to the car with his new girlfriend who's much much younger and they make jokes about that like he's saying like um, it's difficult you know like uh, she's 26 I'm 126 fairly broad (laughs) stuff but it all works within the pastiche and she says like I've had it with you Frankenstein let's just get in the car and he says for the last time I'm not Frankenstein I'm Frankenstein's monster you know all of this (laughs) but it's those the authenticity of the parody which Ben not so much on reality bites but took forward in everything he did a bit later. The only other um, thing that I saw as an early clue, an early indicator in the Ben Stiller show, and it's a secondary trope, I would say, rather than a, a primary one, but uh, there is an episode with James Doohan, uh, Scotty, uh, as a guest star. It's an early mm. episode, and uh, he's he, Ben Stiller, as himself, is very excited that, Scott, that Scotty's going to be on the show uh, because, of course, uh, he's such a big Star Trek fan. And... And I think in almost almost every Ben Stiller picture up until Walter Mitty, I think there is a Star Trek reference of some kind. Often with uh, with with reference to um, like the, the Kirk um, fight with the with the Green Monster or whatever. Yeah, it's yeah. often this, even the same reference. Um, but yeah, so we, we segue into. I th- I think you've done a really good job there of of, of outla- outlining you know what makes the Ben Stiller show so cutting edge at the time. Um, but what I find interesting about Reality Bites, of course, is a lot of the aesthetic that that you get in that show uh, and that underlying bite of satire as well. So Reality Bites isn't a show that uh, isn't a movie that he necessarily uh, wrote from the ground up. The movie itself came from uh, uh, the producer, uh, Michael Schamberg, who wanted to make a movie about young people. Uh, Gen X uh, is obviously, you know, at at the time. And it was um, writer Helen uh, Childress who'd written a script, which he liked, 
Uh, and then basically they started riffing on that and, 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 and she was then starting to write about directly about her friends and experiences trying to get a job in the recession in the early 90s. Stiller was brought on board, I believe, off the strength of his work on the Ben Stiller show. And he then worked with Childress pr- pretty tirelessly for sort of 10 months to a year, uh, refining the scripts and getting it to a point where it was ready ready to, to shoot. Um, and this was all off the back of uh, no major backing from a studio or anything. You know, it, it was being done uh, w- without a lot of that. And it, it wasn't until people like uh, um, Weona Ryder were coming on board um, because she was sort of sick to death of doing period pieces by that point that then um, it started <clears throat> to get that attention from, from Universal. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, um, Stiller then even wrote himself into the script but 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 that that um that bite of satire i think is, is interesting to me and you you get it from the very opening shot where uh we own a rider of course is playing a college graduate and she's valedictorian at the college she's giving the big speech you know it's a big movie trope we see it many times which obviously sets out all of the hopes and dreams of her class graduating you know they've got mortar boards and everything uh and that's when she she talks talks about um they wonder why we're not interested in 80-hour weeks, buying their BMWs, why we're not interested in referencing the previous generation, the counterculture that they invented. And that, that opening scene, to me, is it just sums up like the whole kind of ethos of the movie, which is around this whole uh, setting yourself up as a young person with impossible ideals that you can't then live up to and, and, and trying to wrestle with that throughout your life, which um, is something that I kind of relate to because... Um, I always say punk rock ruined my life because punk rock yeah. set me up with all of these ideals that uh, I struggle with daily and I sell out every damn day. I get out of bed and sell out. Uh, yeah. And uh, and it's something that I'm very conscious of. So the, the Reality Bites for me, you know, on that level of satire works for me. Um, the little moments at the beginning when she graduates, her father gives her the old BMW or whatever, which she's just been lampooning in the speech only a few moments earlier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, 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 but she still accepts it because she doesn't want her mum and dad to fight over whether she gets the BMW or not and they're divorced and it's tricky. Um, so the, these little concessions that you make to make life livable and workable, uh, which, which, which mean that you've sold out. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and the interesting tension between her and Ethan Hawke's character mm. are both excellent in this. Janine and uh, Steve Zahn play the other key roles, and Ben Stiller then is, is not part of their group. He's something against which they're, they all feel they're meant to rebel. They're very suspicious suspicious of his California-style um, leeching on... Well, well we're, he, we're just about he's almost Seattle sound, but... He, he's almost supposed to be... It almost feels like he's a bit older than them, but he's not much older, is he? He's, no, yeah. He, 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 he's, he's essentially an MTV TV exec who's already in a position of power. Um, he's not a creative like the characters, like, like Riona Ryder's character is a creative. Uh, he's there um, making the deals, uh, cutting the deals and, and, and getting this content on air. And uh, and of course, we had a rider's character. Um, they have a car accident, and then she she has to try and make it up to him. Uh, realizes that she has no money whatsoever. And when she's when she's meeting him and trying to apologize and trying to avoid it going to court or whatever, um, whilst he's still having a business call like on his mobile phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's interesting to me again, going back to 
uh, James Doohan, Star Trek in Ben Stiller's show. Uh, ben Stiller's character is not to be trusted because um, A, he has a new BMW or whatever, so that, that's one thing. But B, whilst he's in that office and then uh, uh, and he's on that business call and she's trying to apologise, he's got a Dr. Zayas statue from Planet of the Apes, yeah, which yeah. is a collector's item. Uh, and later on we find he likes Peter Frampton. Uh, so he's, <laughs> we're not allowed to trust him because he's, he's into that older stuff from just just a few too many years outside of their generation, you know? I'm going to change. No, don't change. And don't go thinking for yourself either, lady. Hey, what is your glitch, huh? My glitch? You know what? We're already no, late. No, 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 this Come is, on. You know, this, really this guy, you're, you know, you've got like this whole like thing with the world, don't you, this huh? Really Boy, stupid, no, no, that's okay? great. This that's really, really wonderful. But guess what? I'm a human being, okay? We're human beings, people, okay? You know, we're not like uh, uh, intelligence, you know, quotations. The premise of the film is uh, essentially a love triangle then between Ethan Hawke's character who resolutely will not sell out. But one of the problems inherent in that approach to life is that over time you question whether he has anything to sell. Because he's so, uh, he is creative, but so deliberately willing to hide his light under a bushel. Then there's the opposite of that, or so um, Ethan Hawke's character considers to be his opposite, is Ben Stiller's character. Characteristically self-effacing, Stiller, in his own movie, casts himself as the Baxter. He's the uncalled competition. Maybe didn't have anything to sell out but is part of the corporate machine already and has said that's partly because he didn't have the same liberal arts background as the rest of them and um, doesn't at no point really had the ideals that they claim to have. And I wish I could be perfect, okay? I mean, I wish I could be like Troy riding on his melted cheese sandwich and Don't everything, you but... dare bring Troy into this! Hey, I wish I could be like him. I mean, I wish I could live off of creeds and mottos and all that shit, all right? But I'm in the real world here, okay? And, and I have ideals also. They're, they're, they're that I, I, I care about you and, and I want to make you happy and, and I'm, I just, look, I'll make them take the pizza thing out, okay? And then in the middle of that, there's the, uh, the tug of war, I suppose, for Winona Ryder's character who wants to work in television um, and current, when we begin the film, she has, um, uh, a menial underling gig with John Mahoney's mm. very cuddly uh, daytime television host. But uh, Winona is finding that very unfulfilling. And so there's the question of, will she become a bit more like Stiller's character or will she hold true to the ethics of Hulk's character? And there's a few things that I took from, when I, from the film when I last watched it, which was now about six months ago. Um, and the first is that it felt very current, which I suppose means that the youth will always be talking about the high price of housing and how they can't get onto that market. Uh, yeah, and, this is early know, 90s recession, isn't it? So it's there. I yeah. suppose that the truth is that we're never really more than a decade away from... Okay, I'll put it to you like this, Luke. You're always 10 days away from something. 
<laughs> right, in as much as, like, oh, that's ten days away. Well, it's not, it's seven. Yeah, but including today, it's eight days, and that's basically ten. Or the old, like, well, that's ten days away. It's two weeks away. Yeah, but if you don't include today, and you don't include the day of the thing, then it's twelve days, and that's about ten days. You know what I mean? And you're yeah, always, yeah. you can always say, like, well, the recession was twelve years ago, but really its impacts were felt for a further five years, so really it's basically just still going on right now. Yeah, You've yeah. always got that, and and I felt that acutely about Reality Bites. Everything she talks about and everything everything the characters are informed by during the plot uh, are the same issues around um, entry-level jobs, uh, renting forever, mm-hmm. um, a richer parenting class who haven't yet allowed... Who, who either haven't cut the apron strings or children find themselves unable to voluntarily cut those apron strings mm-hmm. uh, all of that was the same in 94 as it was in 2004 as it was in the last couple of years um so there's always that level of young people 23 years old thinking uh, with a, a, a level of reasonable entitlement uh, you know which is uh, invested in them by their lack of experience saying here i am why can't i get anything why can't i what why aren't things as they should be and who should I blame and it must be the previous generation. There are moments where I can't stand them. Uh, Gen X, it Mm. feels like the millennial thing. There's a moment they're in the petrol station. I think they got the munchies. I think they might have just gotten stoned. They're (laughs) in the the petrol station. They're dancing around because there's a song record on that sounds that they asked to be turned up and the, the poor guy in the petrol station can't even like ring the stuff through because they're dancing around and not paying for it and dicking about. And I'm like, I'm always want want to scream at it like, uh, Oh, for God's sake, you guys are so annoying. (laughs) And I think still, I think still it does. Well, that's a famous, my Sharona moment. That's it. Yeah. my Sharona. I think that was going to be used in Pulp Fiction. Reality Bites got it. And then it became theirs. Whereas it could easily have been considered as somebody else's, including you'll remember this, Luke, it's in Erie, Indiana. It certainly is. Yeah. I think the episode is even called my Sharona. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I remember at the time of the release of Reality Bites, uh, that single was re-released, and like with Lemonheads doing Mrs. Robinson with um, footage from The Graduate, yeah. then the My Sharona re-release had footage from the Reality Bites movie. But I think Stiller does well too. He depicts it, and he doesn't he doesn't outwardly uh, aggressively criticise them, and he doesn't endorse their behaviour either. It, there is a level of entitlement to them, a level that. A level of entitlement that is uh, there's disparity among the characters even because Ethan Hawke doesn't really have the safety nets that Winona Ryder's character does have. Mm. But the yeah. other thing that I that I took from it was that um, I think about this often. We do seem to have forgotten the lessons that you and I and I thought everybody learned in the nineties. And I'm, the kind of lessons I'm talking about, maybe it was because uh, there's always renewal. Maybe it's that each generation learns those lessons and then the generation that follows them has to learn those lessons themselves it's not as though uh it's not like medicine wherein everything that was learned in the 17th 18th 19th and 20th centuries are kept in a big book and we all yeah. know those things now you know it's not a yeah. kind of a, a crude knowledge but yeah. um the lessons of the 90s were things like be careful of the uh be careful of the morals touted by a corporation if they're telling you one thing it's probably because it's good for their business. Yeah. As, as Luke and I have talked about, like I'm very sceptical when Nike throws its weight behind Colin Kaepernick. That's It's not because Nike is a paragon of racial virtue. It's because they think that, on balance, they'll make more money selling shoes to people who like Colin Kaepernick than they will lose money uh, from the plimsolls and trainers not bought by the people who, for their ridiculous batty reasons despise Colin Kaepernick and would oh it's all it's know. all it's all costed uh they, they will always sell to the the um segment of the market they believe to be more affluent 
And when I say believe yeah. to be more affluent, they know they're more affluent. Uh, you know, trust me, I, I sit in these meetings. Uh, you know, we, we know through um, audience research um, what the spending power of different segments of, of the population is. So you go, you think, well, I want to be associated with these people. That's why when HSBC have an ad that seems to be promoting, um, uh, you know, a bigger world view than, uh, yeah. than, 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 than being just an island. Um, it's because they know the people with more money are the people that they want to be talking to. Another lesson we learned in the 90s was sweatshop labour. Now, nobody, there are few people talking about that now. Uh, so much of our consumer culture is, is somewhat in fealty to corporations. If you give a couple of the right dog whistles, by which I mean if you present yourself as accepting and... Uh, a strong proponent of LGBT credentials, there you can still have a load of East Asians earning a dollar a day making your bullshit clothing and seemingly no one will question it or where their iPhone comes from. And these are lessons we learned in the 90s where in the 90s we knew, hold on, if that costs what it does, that's because it doesn't cost down the other end of the line and someone is being exploited. But we that's what we seem to have lost that one. And another one that we've lost as well, which is talked about a lot in Reality Bites, is um, a cynicism towards the entertainment machine. Just an mm. understanding of if this is the story that they're pushing, there are reasons for it. And I think that too many people have... A, they're, they're so willing to be, um, unfortunately, so ready to jump on the team bandwagon. You shouldn't so easily throw your weight behind a commercial corporate entity... Uh, just because this week they're being kindly to women. Mm. Is, and I bring all of this up because this is what I think what Reality Bites speaks to, to an extent. We, it's easy to say, oh yeah, Generation X, and they were cynical, weren't they, and jaded. But it was partly because they were the summation of the previous 30 years, which had seen, I'm not going to rehash it, but 60s, 70s, 80s, we saw everything that happened. And uh, I think that the youth of, by, by the time you get to... 20-somethings in the 90s, they realised, well, we've tried so many things. And it Mm. seems like wherever we try, the establishment wins out. That's a lesson that we've forgotten. There's a moment where Beona Ryder's character is singing the Schoolhouse Rock song, I'm Just a Bill. A sums up that Gen X kind of irony. Um, You know, they reference it in The Simpsons famously. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, With the parody piece. But um, also, you know, I'm Just a Bill to me is a really, like, it's a song of fatigue you know the bill is really bummed out because uh he's a bill and he's not been he's not actually been passed yet and he's going to get um watered down and uh, uh you know all because of politics and on the hill um and you can you can sense his fatigue on his face and in his voice so i i think you know again to your point um interesting that uh we had a writer singing that song thinking Summing up, I think, just that that attitude of Gen X. We've tried so much and here we are. And in cinematic terms, in filmmaking terms, Reality Bites was a a fantastic opening for Ben Stiller. He had made Elvis Stories, a short film with... uh, uh, Mike Myers was involved in that. Andy Dick was involved in that. It was about 89. It um, brought together... Paul Greco, I think, as well. Brought together a lot of the acting fraternity the young actors of the 80s that have been coming up at the same time as Stiller, but his debut proper was Reality Bites. And um, cinematically, it's, it's good. It's, and it's a, it's a very good calling card to have to... Um, you, you made me laugh earlier um, when you're talking about Schamberg wanting to make a film about young people. Yeah. And Ben Stiller was just lucky enough to be considered young 
hip and interesting at the time. I, I can imagine that really a little bit like um, that production. I, I can't remember the specifics, but the production deal which brought American Graffiti to us, that was one of several pictures that were made under the same purview. And the others have uh, faded from memory to an extent, yeah. but they struck gold with one of them. And it does feel like they say like, well, who's young and hip and who's a young director? Him. He'll, he'll do. Do they like him? Are they, in, are they into him? That one then, yeah, give him the and it and it worked and Reality Bites at the time did it did adequately well, and is a re, is still a really good film with a very good cast all doing good work, and then we move mm. on to now move on to Cable Guy and there's so much to talk about Cable Guy even though we did it a year ago, yeah, but we did exactly. it from the Carey perspective. What's really interesting to me is that you've still got that um, same aesthetic as well through from the Ben Stiller show of the. Uh, a lot of handheld camcorder. You you get that throughout Reality Bites. Of course, we own a writer's character is 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 making a film, a documentary of her friends with a handheld camera. So there's a lot of TV being filmed through a camera, and mm. you get that. The most interesting stuff to me in the Cable Guy is not necessarily um, the Jim Carrey part, but it's the it's the subplot. It's the odd subplot subplot where Ben Stiller makes a very small cameo playing Sam Sweet and Stan Sweet, the uh, the, the Sweet Twins. Um, who, who are in this OJ-style trial going on, and you see them in fleeting news reports, and it's, it's the, throughout the picture, and it's a kind of commentary around real-life drama playing out on TV and people wanting to consume that in the way they did the OJ trial. Um, but, but for me, it looks and feels, you know, like, like one guy made all of this stuff from the Ben Stiller show up to this point, you know. The detail behind the pastiches is so precise and you see this uh, I, I think tropic thunder might be the, apo- the apotheosis of this um one of my big bugbears as a film viewer luke will know this because i'll elbow him when we're watching things together mm. no matter the budget of a movie it's so often you'll see really bad mock-ups of photographs so when a character let's say the character is playing a senator and it what the set design requires uh, a photograph framed on the wall of that character with Kofi Annan or Bill Clinton. And they're so often terrible. And you think, hold on a second, this picture costs $40 million. How is it that they can't, whether it's 95, 2005 or a couple of years ago, how is it they can't properly Photoshop when you, you have all... And it's as though it's the last thing they come to, the last consideration on that day's shooting is, oh shit, we need an effective picture of Jerry Adams with this guy. Somebody's, we need to get somebody's cousin to do that immediately. And they've got yeah. nine minutes and they've got mm. ten quid. Um, but when Stiller does a pastiche, it's basically it, it's, it, his filmmaking, Alain, everything he learned in the 80s and 90s is such that it's the real thing. There, it's, it's, it's almost past the point of parody because mm. what he's presenting, the, the very similitude of what he's presenting is... Uh, unidentifiable from the actual genuine article, which uh, we'll talk about it later, but I think that's part of the problem with his career. Uh, sorry, what one of the um, stumbling blocks in some of his work is that what he presents is uh, it's, it's satirical, it's a pastiche, but it can double so effectively as the real thing that you forget to laugh. Yeah. I think to an extent. Well, no, I think that's a really interesting point to make. I hadn't even I hadn't even thought of it in, in that way. But yeah, um 
I mean, what else can we say about it? So Apatow's back, of course. He's involved as producer. So yeah, yeah. we've got that through line, that regular collaborator. Um, and again, and the, and this, the rest of the, the rest of the cast from the Ben Stiller show as well. Janine has a wonderful cameo at Medieval Times as the waitress. Yeah, where please. we get another one of our Star Trek references. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Bob turns up in um, the Porno Password game at Matthew Broderick's parents' house. Yeah, Andy. Andy has a good cameo again. Andy has a great cameo as the MC at Medieval Times. The uh, just get on the friggin' horse, buddy. I don't think he's kidding. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, uh, who else? Kyle Gass is in there. Jack Black, of course. So many people that they've worked with um, before and subsequently. David and, Bowie, and Leslie Mann. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, again, you know, it's not a script he wrote from the ground up, but original screenplay by uh, Lou Holtz Jr. Much, much lighter style of comedy originally. Um, and I think Apatow called it basically like "What About Bob" with Bill Murray. It's this annoying yeah. friend movie. Um, so where Jim Carrey's character would have been far more likable and just a bit more of a loser um, who's kind of intruding in someone's life, in, in, in Matthew Broderick's life, and just being a bit annoying. But of course, what what happened when um, Appertown Stiller got into into the guts of it, this whole setup of someone who, who's very smart with technology invading someone's life, um, and then they just kept making it darker and darker and darker, and it started getting into that kind of thriller territory of, of Cape Fear. You know, for me, it's interesting because I remember it as a Jim Carrey movie, and I remember it being the next Jim Carrey movie after, like, Ace Ventura 2 or whatever, um, and it being billed as his first kind of serious film. He's not necessarily serious in it. You know, he's still playing stuff for laughs, and he's playing it in a, in a very comedic way. Um, but I think in readjusting re your mindset and thinking of it in the context of a Ben Stiller picture, given what you've had thus far, actually suddenly makes a, a lot more sense from you know nine-year-old Luke's perspective of it. <laughs> if you know what I mean? Yeah, because this is what it is. Once once you see the Cable Guy, Zoolander, Tropic Thunder in a line, you realise that the Cable Guy is a pastiche of the 90s yuppies in peril cycle, like Cape Fear, but also bad influence, single white female, unlawful entry, hand that rocks the cradle. Most of these pictures, I think, even though hand that rocks the cradle is Curtis Hansen, it's very good, and Curtis Hansen's a very strong director. But these films have largely been forgotten, I think, by modern audiences. I don't suppose there's anybody... I don't suppose anybody is getting onto Netflix or any of your other providers to um to watch Rob Lowe and Jimmy Spader in Bad Influence. No. It's funny how these these um what was so important briefly uh, then is lost to the ether and becomes it's, ephemeral. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And then it makes Cable Guys feel slightly less relevant because you're right, it is sending up something that's not um people don't even have a memory of anymore, I think. Yeah, and and just as the Ben Stiller show was dedicated to these wonderfully accurate pastiches and parodies of uh, infomercials and pop culture artifacts. So everything that Ben Stiller did on the Ben Stiller show with that, he's done through his career. Cable Guy is again, effectively, from the beginning, as a pastiche of yuppies in peril pictures. And Zoolander is a spy pastiche. Tropic Thunder is a war movie pastiche. At the same time, they still independently function fantastically, even if you have no knowledge That's of true. those genres. And, and as as Luke says... Who the fuck remembers some of this stuff now? I own some of those pictures, but they were um, resolutely studio thrillers. The kind of... I don't know what the modern equivalent now would be of something that we... Something that's so important in 2018, 19 and 20, but in 10 mm. years' time, people will say, what was that? I, I, you know, you'd never go back to these films. Um, 
Before we move on to the next one, did you happen to listen to the commentary of Cable Guy? No, I didn't. I've got it on DVD. Uh, I haven't listened to the commentary. What, what kind of insight did that offer? It's one of the best commentaries I've ever heard. It's in the top 20. Right, so number God, one. wow. Kerry, he's brimming with pride for the work that he did on this. I took a few quotes from it um, because I think it... It embellishes the discussions that you and I had on Carey in our last 90s comedian issue. But as well, I think it better explains who Jim Carey is and uh, what he's trying to do, his own perception of himself, in contrast to what we think of him as. As you've said, Cable Guy was a tremendous pivot, too great a pivot for the studio and for audiences. But where's the quote? Let me see. Carey says on the commentary... The more money people pay me, the more I want to rebel. My Mm. fear was I was going to get paid a lot of money and be safe. My reaction is always to be outrageous. And then he said, let me see. Here's a long one, but I think it's it's, uh, worth airing. Stiller says, this movie does represent a comedic actor taking chances at the height of his confidence and popularity and ability to do so. That's what's cool about this movie. And Carey says, it really is a disease. It's a direct reaction to feeling like you're making it or like you're going to be thought of as establishment. And I still live there. I literally would put my head through a pane of glass before I would be thought of as predictable. And Apatow says, and that's why you had sex with Ewan McGregor. <laughs> and Carey says, that's why I went all the way, I turned him out. And that's in reference to I Love You, Philip Morris, which, if I'm not mm. mistaken, Luke, one of your favourite films of the last decade. Yeah, I love that movie. Um, I haven't seen it in a lot of years, and that's pretty much forgotten now. I wonder why that is. It didn't get a huge release, especially in the States, probably because it was about gay people. Yeah, ex- exactly because of that. And there you go. There's To better understand Jim Carrey, now, yes, his, his wheelhouse is pratfalls and slapstick and silly voices and talking out of his ass. He did do that. He did that in the 80s and he did it at the beginning of the 90s. But just like Bill Murray seems to have completely deserted the thing he's best at, not just the thing that made him famous, but the thing that he's best at, the thing that makes him Bill Murray. Bill Murray doesn't want to do that any longer. Jim Carrey, as an artist, when he got to Cable Guy, when he received 20 million for that picture, his intention was to say, no, 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 I'm a punk. I'm still a punk, and I need to stay true to my punk credentials. Um, and another interesting thing I found out as well, I did a, a, in a bit of background reading, it's a book that came out in 1996, shortly before the release of The Cable Guy, by Nancy Griffin called Hit and Run. And it was an excoriating investigation of the previous 10 years at Sony Pictures. And uh, an unpacking of all the mad ideas they had, including, as we've talked about in the past, Last Action Hero and the utter Farrago of Last Action Hero and Neil Canton's work on that. And particularly Nancy Griffin was going after um, John Peters and Peter Goober. And that book came out uh, weeks before The Cable Guy hit cinemas. And so on the commentary, the three of them say, yeah, we think it was just our time to be in the firing line. People bought the book. Hollywood was abuzz with its release. And they looked to see who they could go for first, who um, another example of Sony excess. Mm. And they found the cable guy. They found that, you know, a Jim Carrey receiving 20 million, um, that, that breaking the 20 million barrier, the first actor to ever receive that amount for working on a picture. It was without precedent. You know, the, I think he, his salary was two-thirds or a half of the entire... Um, it was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he says in the commentary as well, he makes a comment like, um, ah, you know, people went after me for that. 20 million, you know? After agents' fees, I only see 7 million of that. <laughs> you know? But yeah, it, it was just... Uh, and Ben Stiller was, extra- I think, extraordinarily unlucky in that regard, that he'd made 
um, something that functioned as a great pastiche that was also Jim Carrey at his very best and was really funny and did all of those things and then at the same time was an interesting uh, sub, uh, dissection of just entertainment and news media at the time. Yeah. And a lady publishes a book in the same year and it fucks him entirely. Mm. Um, there's always, you know, build them up and knock them down, man. The press is always eager to give somebody a kicking. And as we talked about in our last 90s comedian issue, Jim Carrey was the biggest star on the planet. Dumb and Dumber, Ace Ventura, The Mask. Um, and it was his time in the stocks. It was Jim Carrey's time in the stocks. It was Sonny's time in the stocks. Um, but nevertheless, oh, we have to give Ben Stiller and Apatow credit here as well because it was utterly subversive to take the biggest star in Hollywood and go for a resolutely uncommercial dark comedy where that bloke eschews some of the zany stuff that he was best known for or uh, does its kind of mirror image. Man, he did Batman Forever around that time as well. God, he was huge. <laughs> yeah, he was huge. I just huge. remembered. He did He's Batman really good in that as well. Oh, yeah. gosh. At the height of Jim Carrey's popularity, Stiller makes... Uh, Stiller utterly subverts Carrey's um, popular persona... Uh, at, with Kerry's blessing, and uh, I can't emphasise enough um, the zest with which Jim Carrey speaks about that role, how excited he was to take it, how excited he is looking back s like several times during the commentary. He marvels not at his own performance. In fact, he's quite critical. He has such zeal for the film. He finishes the commentary by saying, we need to do this again. And they're saying, yeah, it'd be really good. And he says, and, and you can tell it's not because um, Kerry needs a hit, or Ben Stiller or Judd Apatow particularly um, more commercially viable in 2005-2006. But it's because he loved what they made together, which was a, a deliciously subversive, dark comedy. Yeah. Uh, as I say, which had the misfortune of being released at the same time as a book which went after Sonny. And then when we get to Stiller's next picture, Zoolander, it was released around the time of 9-11. Well, I know. I, I, I think as a back-to-back, -back, there's just extraordinary misfortune yeah. there. I think at they, a time when... <sighs> they had to digitally remove a lot of the World Trade Center and stuff, didn't they? Because it's such a New York yeah. picture. And subsequently, like, I remember reading articles as early as 2006 that said, hey, there's this picture Zoolander. Listen, it's a bit of a cult. You might not have seen it. And I, I was talking to, I distinctly remember I was down in London visiting my pal Ricardo. We were out on the beers all that afternoon and evening. And he said, did you read this? Like, they're talking about it like no one knows the film. And I yeah. thought, that's, I saw this at the pictures. Uh, but it's it's right. Um, now, we've got the statistics here somewhere, haven't we? I'll just... It was just becoming, by that point, by the mid-2000s, um, and maybe, you know, slightly before, 2003, 2004. So I was in, you know, like, sixth form GCSE in 2003 to 2005. And uh, it was that point where it was a VHS that people had on at house parties. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's how I discovered it. Um, it was one of those ones that if we were, yeah, if we were ever having a, some drinks, um, and it was a, a house party situation where I was getting far too drunk uh far too young um it was it was a picture that it was a vhs that people owned and it was kind of being passed around if you know what i mean within within that kind of circle and um it did all right it made money it made its money back and it made money but it came 55 at the u.s box office 63 global and i'm so pleased that i supported it in its original theatrical run we're back from university 
December, January 2001, 2002. And I had everyone on board for it because I'd got them into Mystery Men. We went to see that as well. And off the back of that, they knew that this was going to be something similar. And so I was there at the beginning and that felt like a, and that felt like a worthy summation of the previous five years of Ben Stiller hero worship. I think up to that point, his, his magnum opus, although his true magnum opus yeah. is yet to come. But what's interesting for me in Zoolander is by that point, he'd had his big breakout acting roles and, and as a leading comic yeah. guy. So in 98, Cable Guy's 96. Only two years later, something about Mary comes out in 98. And then you got Meet the Parents in 2000, if you can believe that. Um, I was actually quite surprised when I realised it came out in 2000. Yeah, December 2000, I think. Yeah, yeah. just at the end. So um, you've got these two big pictures. And there's other stuff he's doing around that time. Mystery Men, things like that, that no one really remembers now. But uh, in terms of, you know, in both those pictures, he, he was essentially the lead. Um, and, and he carried them. Um, so you've got, this is when you've got these parallel careers by that point, because you've got Ben Stiller, the movie star, Ben Stiller, the director. And I think with Zoolander, he, he straddles both quite, you know, really, really well, because yeah. he's the lead in this picture. Don't forget the first time in his, one of his own pictures, he's, he, he's led it. And, um, and yes, he's got, he, he's got the whole of the, 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 the frat pack thing starting to come in there. You've got, um, uh, Vince Vaughn, even uh, with I don't think he has a single line, does he, Vince? Vaughan? Correct, yeah. He uh, but uh, <laughs> he's he's amazing as the brother who uh, who's just looking on his his brother Ben Stiller with disdain. Uh, along with and Judah, Judah Friedlander is the other brother of yeah. Scrappy Zoolander. <laughs> yeah, that's Scrappy Zoolander. That's fantastic. But uh, yeah, so you've got this. You've got I, I think Zoolander is this perfect marriage of Ben Stiller, the the satirist, and again, uh, and the movie star. And again, uh, the, in the opening few minutes, um, there's a lot of news reports, a lot of shaky handheld camera. So aesthetically, you've still got that through line, but. Um, lampooning uh, uh, celebrity culture through news reports I think is, is fantastic and you've got um, you've got um, Derek Zoolander being interviewed of course saying that uh, it first occurred to him that he could maybe you know he saw a picture of, uh, he saw his reflection in a spoon and then thought he was good looking and he could make a career yeah. out of out of what out of being paid to be good looking uh, so um, and you know, he even gets Donald Trump to say a line in this picture I know he wasn't present, yeah. at, present at the time but I still think that took a little bit of going uh, to, to get him to say like I, I, he, I know he's done cameos, Home Alone two, whatever. But uh, yeah, he, he actually has like quite a long line, you know, <laughs> to, the, yeah. to the camera, which is pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, this time the news reports, unlike um, Cable Guy, the news reports this time aren't from a courtroom; they're from the red carpet. Um, but I think that aesthetic has come all the way through for the Ben Stiller show right up to that point. And there's a Gary, Gary Shandling cameo in there as well. So, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He, he's there uh, with Run DMC, with Ben Stiller, the sleazy agent. But he, uh, he's, he's at the fashion show at the beginning, I think. Yeah, because uh, as, as we said earlier, so much of this comes from that um, Catch a Rising Star, late 80s, early 90s stand-up coterie. All of that. So Bob Odenkirk worked on... Larry Sanders' show with Stevie Grant. Janine was a regular. Um, Marilyn Rice could appeared on it. Uh, such a fertile and uh, well, the easiest way to put it is that everybody was doing jobs for everybody. And if and if a Patel said, "Can I get a cameo from you, Ben?" Then Ben turns up in um, a, a, as a Apatel says, 
in the um, in the notes on Freaks and Geeks. They thought they were probably going to be cancelled anyway, but they thought the Ben Stiller cameo... They filmed it just to get it in there quickly. Maybe that would help save them, to give them a bit of a bump. And Stiller did the same thing on Undeclared as well. Mm. Um, he's always been so generous in that regard, and so generous as well. Um, I mentioned earlier that Magatu has written for Andy Dick, and Andy, unfortunately, was already committed to a sitcom, which ran... Uh, let me check. It ran five episodes. So he, he relinquished the role of Magatu because there was... Um, a schedule conflict and that was all for the sake of a month and a half but in his stead a role that was written for Andy is so well assayed by Will Ferrell and it blows Will Ferrell up mm. um, and Patton Oswalt gets a cameo as we said Judah as well Justin Theroux is the evil DJ the um, your boy Zoolander's here and Theroux and Stiller would be a, a very fecund uh, partnership later on in their careers. The roots of Zoolander and the character of Derek Zoolander, uh, the provenance of it is as obscure as Ron Burgundy, because I think a lot of people don't realise that Will Ferrell's Ron Burgundy is basically his Robert Goulet impersonation, which he did on uh, did on Saturday Night Live at the end of the 90s. He's doing like um, Robert Goulet sings Biggie. So he's singing, Papa! Mm. I love it when you call me big papa and the whole thing is there is the, the voice is there the moustache the suit and Zoolander comes from the VH1 Fashion Awards of 1996 so Ben and Drake Stather wrote three uh, pastiches which they filmed as uh, short films where Andy Dick played a fashion designer Kathy Griffin played the head of a modelling agency and Stiller played Zoolander the male model they reprised that uh, a year or two later it's, so it's we all know the film Zoolander by now, but it's I don't think many people know that it came from such a, again an unusual uh, VH1 fashion award, such um, an obscure. It gives you sucker that perhaps anything could be successful if you can just get it out there and get it somewhere. Then you never know how far it can go. Watching Zoolander again from the very beginning, Stiller is biting the hand that feeds him as he does in Tropic Thunder yeah. as he did to an extent in The Cable Guy he's using one form of humour as a vehicle to make a more trenchant point almost as a tactic of distraction because Zoolander Zoolander is a lampoon which uses specifically male models as a method to poke gentle fun at the modelling industry and you could be forgiven for thinking it doesn't actually criticise the fashion industry the actual clothing being made uh, though there is there is a there's a fun diversion there with Mugatu's derelict line. But for the most part, the target is everything excessive about the industry except the actual clothing. <coughs> and it's a film that the, the reality and realism of which is um, made indistinguishable as a pastiche because of the participation of the fashion world, because Donatella Versace's in it, because so many... Um, so many people make cameos. I think I saw Tom Ford in there as well. Yeah, yeah. It's just, again, and Lenny Kravitz presenting at the VH1 Fashion Awards and everybody's in on it. And yet, at its very heart, the film is about the assassination of a politician who has successfully dismantled sweatshop working mm -hmm. and um, has improved labour conditions in Malaysia. And that's the beginning of the film. At the beginning of the film, they say, um, haute couture and fashion is based upon uh, sl the the slave labour backs of poor people in East Asia. Yeah, and our hero as, and and yet, you know, they, they all. I, I find it astonishing that Stiller gets them involved in this, and no one, you know, because there's to put it simply, 
Um, Stiller even did this on extras, but it's common for actors to play themselves and it's a heightened version and, oh, guess what? Really, they're an arsehole, mm. you know? And uh, um, everybody's done that. And it's as though they do that to show, hey, I've got a sense of humour about myself. I wouldn't play myself as an arsehole if I was really an arsehole, guys, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. And I always I always gave great credit to Adam Sandler uh, in Judd Apatow's Funny People because Adam Sandler is not playing so superficial uh, an interpretation of himself. Adam Sandler in that picture is playing what everybody thinks Adam Sandler is, which is um, uh, grown fat on box office hit after hit, jaded, lazy, miserable, in uh, in hatred with himself. It's such a courageous performance to say, I am all the things that you think I am. Yeah. Um, and for Stiller to do this to... Uh, to expose the fashion world like this and for them to all be on board because they think it's just a silly little comedy. Amazing to me, amazing. Yeah, you say that. I also think that a lot of people in the fashion world are probably liberal-minded and much like Hollywood actors want to be associated with something that shows that they're in on the joke and that they're above this and they're smart enough to know um, how the world really works and that their liberal values you know, mean that they're opposed to exploitation, etc, etc, etc. But uh, yeah. you know, really, they're, they're part of the big shitty system, like, like the Hollywood actors themselves. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose that's, that might be one motivation for why Stiller, as a, as a performer, we're so familiar with Stiller being a very anxious, uneasy character. If you watch his cameos in... Um, like Bad Boy for Life by Puffy or Friends, if you remember his little role in that. He's so mm. often playing the guy who can barely, he, he can barely vocalise exactly what he's trying to express. Oh, nice job. Very well done. Really? Yeah, I don't want to hear it from you. Yeah, well, I forgot. I'm not qualified to talk to you. I'm sorry I can't be Mr. Uh, hey, look at me. I'm Buddha on the mountaintop. You know what you are, man? You know what you remind me of? You're you like that, 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 that guy with the, you know, with, the, the, with the hat and the bells and the little, you know... The court jester. Yeah, right, where everything's so easy to laugh at from a safe distance back in Clever Cleverland. You know what happens to him? They find his skull in a grave and they go, Oh, I knew him and he was funny. And the guy, the court jester, dies all by himself the film upon that for that to be the first thing that people think about oh yeah for people to think oh yeah undeniably the clothes i buy may have some very inhumane working practices behind them and i think that might be well, one fuel for stiller i think he understands that he's in a position of relative privilege and as much as he loves being an actor he also finds it inherently ridiculous and one way to uh give penance to that is to make these pictures that lay it all bare. And I do, I, I'd like for people to reconsider it as a spy pastiche, as I said, with Cable Guy as um, a thriller pastiche and with moving on to Tropic Thunder as a war pastiche as well. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, the, the David Duchovny scene is the big one for me in the yeah, in, yeah. when they meet in the graveyard. And it's David Duchovny playing the deep throat character who normally advises him in X-Files and, and, and tips him off to stuff. So... Yeah, as a spy pastiche, as a thriller, as a All the President's Men, it works on that level as well. Yeah, and uh, here's how we can move on. Zoolander includes a couple of Ben Stiller show-style parodies, uh, which I think are its weakest components, and that's a bit that spoofs Godfather Part Two, and a bit that spoofs 2001. Um, the latter is when Hansel and Derek 
are jumping around. They're trying to find a set of files and it's clear that they don't know that files are kept on a computer as data rather than literally inside a computer like yeah. pieces of paper. How the files get in there kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it devolves into the um, bone scene from 2001. Adequately done. It's fun, I suppose. And, and what it feels like um, is a little bit like when Family Guy does a pastiche. But it's not really a pastiche. It's just the scene replicated uh, without deviation by the Family Guy cast. Mm. That's not necessarily comedy. I think too much of modern comedy has gone down that route. However, by the time we get to Tropic Thunder, uh, seven years later, the those um, deliberate callback pastiches mm. of existing media and, and pictures, they, I think they're perfectly integrated into the film. Tropic Thunder pastiches, um, in particular scenes, the opening of Saving Private Ryan with um, the, the moment where Tom Hanks' character Miller uh, goes deaf from a shell. Mm. That bit in Tropic Thunder, there's also a platoon pastiche. And then the um, like the apogee of all of this is the Apocalypse Now pastiche. And this is why we feel that Tropic Thunder is one of the last, the last great big budget comedies, if not the last, and also one of the last times that Hollywood gave money to someone and said, your vision, do it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's Apocalypse Now pastiche is the napalm hit. And I can't imagine how much that cost. I know. The the opening scene is remarkable uh, for the amount of money that's physically on the screen. Yeah. Uh, it It's still astounding. In fact, it's probably, it's even more astounding now because we're so used to seeing CG augmented um, shots. Watching Tropic Thunder, which to me feels like a modern film, 2008, when you look back on it, you go, hey, I, this is like one of the last old school <laughs> films in the way it was made. Yeah. Um, and it comes, of course, you know, like I said with Zoolander, he's now coming off the back of a run of hits. So we've got um, Ben Stiller, the film star, has just done Along Came Polly, uh, Dodgeball. Um, and then you've got this third career, which is Ben Stiller, the family uh, draw, because he's the voice uh, in one of the voices of Madagascar. Uh, Night at the Museum was 2006. So yeah, second biggest film in America, fifth biggest film at the global box office in its year 2006, fifth biggest. So was Madagascar. It's astonishing. So the way I see Tropic Thunder is almost a re- the return of Ben Stiller. So he, yeah. even, even though he's had film after film after film over the past few years, where he has been the star and he has he has been hit. So he's he's had Meet the Parents sequels. He's had Jennifer Aniston rom com pictures. You know, he's he's a rom com leading man, and then he's a family film leading man and he is a doing frat pack pictures uh, and he's in animation you know which by this point of course we're post toy story 2 to to be uh in uh, the voice a celebrity voice in an animation is is a big big deal and and uh and madagascar had an all-star cast you know um, I, I really do see that in 2008, Tropic Thunder is kind of a re- the return of Ben Stiller. It's the kind of comeback album, you know? And uh, and what I also like is, if you remember at the top of the show, I mentioned this is a film he's had in his head since he had a bit part in Spielberg's Empire of the Sun in the 80s, where he wanted to make a film uh, based on the actors he knew uh, after taking part in boot camps to prepare for film roles he saw people become increasingly self-important, self-involved, 
uh, and appeared to believe that they were actually now part of a real military unit. So th- this is where the German, the seed of the film, uh, of the film came. Yeah. And, and I really do see this as not only the absolute perfect distillation of Stiller, not only the biggest budget comedy picture ever, and, and the last one of the last ones we will ever see, but um, I see this as the kind of realisation of everything he's been kind of building up to, up to this point. Uh, and, and you've got that wonderful cast with Stiller, Jack Black, Robert Downey Jr., uh, Brandon T. Jackson, um, and making this Vietnam picture. And, uh, and yeah, I, I think for me this is the big, this is the big comeback, comeback album. And uh, interesting as well, collaborating on the script with uh, Justin through this time. So this is one of the first times where it's his picture, and uh, apart from Zoolander, which obviously based off sketches, it's his picture and it's based on an idea that he had. And then he started to craft it with Justin through, most notably, you know, who's an actor, you know, on David Lynch pictures and stuff. And yeah, one of his first writing gigs. This is obviously friends getting together and collaborating on something that they they believed in. And for me, Fletch, I'd like to get your opinion on the opening um, satirical trailers, which I could watch endlessly, you know, without having watched the rest of the picture. It sets up within the first five minutes. A, we are sending up Hollywood, so be prepared. And B, it sets up where each of these actors are, these fictional actors are in their careers. So you've got Jack Black has just been doing you know, subpar Eddie Murphy. By the time Eddie Murphy descended into Nutty Professor territory, you know, this is where yeah. Jack Black's at. Uh, you've got Robert Downey Jr., who's the serious, uh, who's, you know, award-winning uh, actor. And then you've got Ben Stiller, the aging movie star, uh, sorry, um, uh, action star, as Tug Speedman in the film series Scorcher. And I love even subtle things in that, the fact he's holding a baby along with a gun which is that whole yeah. send-up of the action movie trope where, oh, if you need the audience to sympathise with them, he'll save a baby at one point, you know? It was one of the, yeah, it was yeah. one of the moments where I really rolled my eyes in, in Rogue One, sadly, the Star Wars film, when uh, there's a baby and uh, she, she runs to save the baby. And I thought, oh, my God, like, really? We're, we're on that level? But hey-ho. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an amplification of um, what John Woo began in Hard Boiled with Chow Yun-Fat. Then by the time we've got it here with Tug Speedman, he has two babies attached to through some kind of papoose sling on his <laughs> chest and two guns. Uh, Sculpture 4, Global Meltdown, I think it is, where yeah. the, the whole world's gone frozen. Yeah. Um, you make a really good point. It's important for the film to uh, immediately contextualise and present to us the paradigms that we're working with, that we've got the rapper-turned-actor, the um, flatulent, broad comedian, uh, the established five-time Academy Award winner, which I think is a little bit over the top because no one's won more than three. But the the established thespian... Because I, I, my anticipation for Tropic Thunder was ex, uh, just astonishingly high. I'd been tracking it for about 18 months. And as you say, it was um, an idea that Stiller had had since that Vietnam picture vogue that began with Platoon and continued with Hamburger Hill and Casualties of War. And again, I think it's interesting to satirise these things. So, for instance... We can uh, endorse most of the aims of, say, Black Lives Matter or the Me Too movement while at the same time satirising it. You can satirise things that are legitimate and important without necessarily um, detracting from them. And yes, like in, in making a picture like Platoon, I love Platoon. I, I love the work of Oliver Stone. And its evocation of the reality of Vietnam is an important artistic statement 
and the work that Willem Dafoe, Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger and the rest of them did in that picture is great acting work and they've done something really good. At the same time, you always get the feeling Ben Stiller saying like, you didn't actually go there. I'm just saying. Yeah. Remember who you are. You're a, you know, well, I you're think a dude I th- playing a dude pretending to be another dude. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, know, I know. I love that scene. I do think this is something we're fast losing with comedy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, is that, because f- f- for, for me, I, look, people were making paedophile jokes in the 90s and in the 2000s. I was making paedophile jokes. And the whole point you do, the whole reason you do it is because being a paedophile is not cool. So that therefore, therefore you you should send stuff up, man. Like nothing is sacred. Yeah. Um, and now I've noticed that if I do a paedophile joke, people go whoa, 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 whoa. And they don't like it because we're post Jimmy Savile, you know, the, post U Tree, right? Um, and I get that yeah. things can get raw, but for me, the whole point of comedy is. Yeah, there's a moment in uh, Kirby Enthusiasm. He's not talking about comedy. It's an early early season of Kirby Enthusiasm where he says something to someone. Oh, it's uh, your boy. Uh, he's got a really big penis because he sees his boy getting changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He sees yeah. his son getting changed. He goes, oh, your boy, is, um, he's got a big penis. And the guy goes, is is so upset that he said this and he takes the boy away, etc. So and Larry just shrugs it off. And then later on, his wife says... Why, why doesn't he like you or whatever? And he said, well, I told him his son has a big penis. And she looks at him as a beat and he, she goes, why would you say that, Larry? And he looks at her and he says, I took a risk. And, and, and for me, that is like, that's the essence of, of comedy is, is where can yeah, I go yeah. with this? I need, to, I need to send this up in some way. Where's the humor in it? I need to deconstruct it, take it all apart and put it back together yeah. again. And for me, it's like, yeah, you're right. Like, you know, um, Platoon, Apocalypse Now, that stuff is sacred. Doesn't mean you shouldn't rip the shit out of it because, yeah. th- because yeah. these things, you need to shoot things down to see what they're made of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, Tropic Thunder does this astonishingly well in its two most famous and most controversial satirical aspects. I've heard it said so many times in the last five years that Tropic Thunder wouldn't be made today. I've seen people who can't think for themselves suggesting that the film shouldn't be made today because it's ableist, because it's racist. But among the reasonable majority, there's an appetite, there's a deep hunger to see these issues satirised, to see them exposed and understood using comedy. Tropic Thunder cast Robert Downey Jr. as an Australian actor who is kind of a parody of Daniel Day-Lewis and Russell Crowe called Kirk Lazarus, a five-time Academy Award winner. And the, the, the satire it makes is that this actor has essentially conquered all that's before him and the only challenge that he feels is remains for him is to undergo a procedure to darken his skin so that in the, the movie adaptation of the book Tropic Thunder by the character in the film Four Leaf Tayback, it gets very meta. Uh, he can play the black sergeant Lincoln Osiris. And so Robert Downey, as Kirk Lazarus, undergoes that procedure, comes out looking like a black man, wears an Afro wig. And actually there's an overlooked satirical barb in this one because one of the functions of the Brandon T. Jackson character is to lay bare the uh, underrepresentation of African Americans in Hollywood pictures, as he says, there was one great African-American role in this movie and they gave it to the fucking Australian. And so he has to take what this, the scraps. Uh, and the point that Stiller is making is a point that's, um, that finds its reprise at the end of the picture as well and, and throughout, um, wherein it was common during the 80s, 90s, 
uh, the alts and even most of this decade to overly com to commend an actor who took chances of playing a gay character, playing a disabled character. And so obviously the satirical, illogical, fantastic logical conclusion of that is to say, well, what if a white guy played a black guy mm. as an acting challenge? And subsequently, the funny thing is that at the time, um, the criticism was levelled at the depiction of Simple Jack, which is making the exact same fucking point. Yeah. Which is that actors think that they are stretching themselves. And they, of course they are. Like, I, I have my own uh, mild ambitions as an actor. And if you get to, you know, you think, oh, can I do an accent? Yeah, I can do accents. Can I change my physicality? Oh, yeah, I can. Then the next stretch is, can I play someone of a different physical ability or a, a mental disability? Of course, but it's the self-involvement of the actors Stiller is making fun of, and also an industry which consistently awarded the depiction of um, mental illness or a mental disability as portrayed by able-bodied and uh, yeah. mentally from, able actors. From Rain Man to Forrest Gump. Yeah, and so at the end of Tropic Thunder, at the end of the picture, you've got the Academy Award nominees, and one of them is Sean Penn playing a blind man, one of them is Tom Hanks playing a wheelchair athlete. It's, it's scabrous of Ben Stiller to present Hollywood back to it. Mm. And it's amazing that he was given the budget to do this. And so exciting to see it on screen, to see him presenting back to Hollywood. You think it's that the, the ultimate challenge is for an able-bodied actor to play, uh, as you say, like a, a retard. Mm. Um, and it's funny that people... <laughs> people are so astoundingly missing the point when from the perspective of 2019 or 2020 they look back and say that's wrong and you say yes we know that's the point we were making the, the points that the film are making are so um almost disabling mm. uh, to hollywood to say take a look at yourself the film tropic thunder is not overtly saying uh hollywood needs to change its attitude towards disability and ensure that there are more disabled roles portrayed by people that have that disability because you know Tro tropic thunder is not uh, a charity mm. it's not a pressure group that's not its role its role is to highlight this is just simply to hold up the mirror to Hollywood and say this is what you've endorsed so far and is it really so ridiculous to think that an actor would because um, not really, he's not blacking up to an extent mm. he's you know the, the ultimate challenge becoming Lincoln Osiris it's a fantastic point to make I'm so glad Stiller made it. And then the other thing is he can have his cake and eat it too as well because Robert Downey is excellent. Well, one of my favourite Robert Downey moments, of course, is never go full retard. It's going to be tough, but I think Damien's going to get some great shit out of us. Just wish I had a director like this on Jack. On Jack. What? Jack, what are you talking about? Simple Jack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Simple Jack, yeah. You went all out on that one, huh? You did. You really swung for the fences, huh? Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it was an intense experience. You know, I just, I just did the work. Watched a lot of retarded people. Spent time with them, observed them. Watched all the retarded stuff they did. You know, there were times when I was doing Jack that I actually felt retarded. Like, really retarded. Oh, yeah. Damn. In a weird way, I had to sort of just free myself up to believe that it was okay to be stupid or dumb. To be a moron. Yeah. To be moronical. Exactly. To be a moron. An imbecile. Yeah. Like the dumbest motherfucker that ever lived. When I was playing the character. When you was a character. Yeah, yeah, I mean, as Jack, definitely. Yeah. Jack. Stupid-ass Jack. By the end of the whole thing, I was like, wait a minute, you know? 
I flush so much out, how am I gonna jumpstart it up again? It's just like, that's what we do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hats off of going there. Especially knowing not to cat me is about that shit. About what? You're serious? You don't know. <laughs> Everybody knows you never go full retard. What do you mean? Check it out. Dustin Hoffman, Ray Man, look retarded, act retarded, not retarded. Cat two picks, cheated cards, autistic, show, not retarded. You got Tom Hanks, Forrest Gump. Slow, yes, retarded, maybe, braces on his legs, but he charmed the pants off next to him and won a ping pong competition. That ain't retarded. Peter Sellers being there. Infantile, yes, retarded, no. You went full retard, man. Never go full retard. You don't buy that? That's Sean Penn, 2001, I am saying. Remember? Went full retard. Went home empty handed. 10 years of making, or 15 years of making Iron Man pictures. I really miss um, Robert Downey Jr. making pictures like this, because this was obviously the same year of the, as the first Iron Man movie. So one, one of the things I think is really interesting as well, is, is beyond that clip, is, is Robert Downey Jr. I think we were robbed after all the Iron Man pictures he's made, because this is the, this is the same year as that first Iron Man film. Uh, and him as Kirk Lazarus is, is, is wonderful. And uh, I love the moment as well, where he says that um, I don't, I don't break character until the DVD commentary. And then to pile on top of that, he doesn't break character until the DVD commentary because he, yeah. he is still playing that character on the Tropic Thunder DVD. And uh, we talk a lot about um, using the likes of CEX and track down DVDs, that two-disc DVDs that are out of print now. You can get them for about 50 pence. And there's even a half-hour documentary that they made. Uh, Fletch, I, I know that you, you dug into that one. Yeah, so the commentary, I was sceptical about the commentary because I wasn't, wasn't sure that it was a joke that could hold up for two hours, especially since Stiller and Black are just themselves. They're, of course, they're engaging, um, but then they're sat with Downey mm -hmm. playing Kirk Lazarus, playing Lincoln Osiris, until the point in the film where Kirk Lazarus uh, drops the facade of Lincoln Osiris and tries to find himself. At that point, Downey then begins playing the actor Kirk Lazarus with his Australian accent, which is perfect, and which he um, first essayed in Natural Born Killers, Mickey and Mallory, Trail of Destruction. Yeah. Fantastic with that. And then only during maybe the end credits does Robert Downey actually get to be himself. A again, Tropic Thunder was a kind of a, a milestone uh, for... That the DVD age, which I suppose really only ran maybe 10 years. I'm thinking back to like some of the first significant releases were The Matrix, for instance, yeah. and a special edition of Terminator 2. So yeah. that's that's at the end of 99 and the end of 2000. Yeah. And then by about, uh, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12 um, DVD, you know, Blu-ray had superseded DVD. But what we lost was supplementary features and special features. And the Tropic Thunder three-disc set is fantastic and... The dedication that Stiller, Eaton Cohen, Justin Theroux and the rest of the cast and crew have to the verisimilitude of presenting this is amplified by having Justin Theroux make for the film Tropic Thunder what Eleanor Coppola did for Apocalypse Now. Yeah. So she made Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Justin Theroux plays a Werner Herzog-style documentarian who is filming the making of the film within a film, Tropic Thunder, and his picture is called Reign of Madness. <laughs> you, you all know him. Everybody knows Werner Herzog now because he's in The Mandalorian, isn't yeah, he? I can't remember yeah. his lines. But yeah. And I think he was and in so, a... I think everyone knows him because he was a, in Rick and Morty. Uh, oh, yeah, he yeah. He does a guest 
voice in that. I think that's why he's uh, liked by the current generation. He's got one of the all-time great voices. Uh, yeah, so Justin Theroux is playing this Werner Herzog. Uh, it's called, I think it's called Jan Jürgen. And the picture he makes is Reign of Madness, the tagline for which is, before the thunder comes the madness. Because you're expected <laughs> to be rain, obviously. Um, and it's a, yeah, it's a 30-minute documentary shot in the Herzog style yeah. of Steve Coogan as Damien Coburn trying to make Tropic Thunder, detailing production delays. I'd say at least 20 of the 30 minutes footage is new. Yeah. Um, it has a, a diversion with Robert, again, this becomes complex, but Robert Downey as Kirk Lazarus, as Lincoln Osiris, during a production delay caused by a hurricane, taking his entire fake Lincoln Osiris family back to Galveston, Texas, yeah. and holding them hostage while he... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> while he develops the character of Lincoln Osiris, um, the 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 film itself it's worth watching. You might watch it a couple of times. It's I'm not saying it's the Ruttles. It's not Spinal Tap. But to go that extra yard, this is what I love about Stiller and those that were working with him. He was provided with the uh, with the f- with the finance necessary to do everything he'd always wanted. Quite literally, as we said, he had this idea for man, 15 years at least, mm. and to say I'm going to do it right. And in addition to that. I'm going to make sure that we even have, while we pastiche Apocalypse Now, we pastiche the documentary of Apocalypse Now. Yeah. I mean, the the, the detail, the strenuous detail involved in doing all of that. Um, and, and we haven't up to this point talked to this, but while all of this is happening, Tropic Thunder as well, I think, is one of the best written comedy screenplays of however long you want to say, the last 15 years, the last 20 years, the last 40 years. I want to go through... Um, I want to go through it character by character very briefly because we're so uh, we're under a deluge at the moment of poorly written comedies with barely sketched characterization uh, and screenplays which well, I feel like, seem to be I feel like Judd Apatow is partly to re- responsible for some of that but yeah yeah and and that's that's the funny thing because although they although they began together and are great admirers of each other's work and we need both of them I need Judd Apatow and his new coterie that he founded with Freaks and Geeks doing their um, improvisational thing. That was necessary for a period. It was a corrective. Well, sorry, it, it wasn't a corrective, but it was necessary for a period. But I also need Ben Stiller's relatively tightly scripted. And um, um, by which I mean, although there's improvisation on set, all of these, uh, the, the characters in Tropic Thunder are properly drawn characters with yeah. uh, character arcs and redemptive arcs. And... So, for instance, and this goes right through the main cast. I think there's nine of them. Mm. Um, so, Tug Speedman, who uh, is doubting his acting credentials and also feels himself to be completely alone and friendless. There's that lovely moment where, um, in a mock-up of, uh, of the Tyra Banks show, she's interviewing Ben Stiller as Tug Speedman. You have no real family. You're on the wrong side of 40. You're childless and alone. Somebody close to you said... One more flop, and it's over. Somebody said they were close to me? So, um, and those are the problems he's dealing with, but he becomes that real dramatic actor, and he wins that Academy Award. And then Kirk Lazarus discovers himself at the beginning of the picture he can only be other people. By the end of the film, he knows who he is. He's Kirk Lazarus yeah. for, for the first time. Jack Black's character, Jeff Portnoy, begins the picture as a disgraceful heroin addict. Uh, he ends the film having beaten his addictions. 
Al Pacino begins the film closeted. Uh, this is Brandon T. Jackson's character. By the end of the film, he's out and proud, and he's finally dating Lance. It's Lance Bass, isn't it? Mm, yeah. <laughs> of, uh, of NSYNC. And this, it's, it, this is so thick. Um, Kevin Sandusky, which is Jay Baruchel's character, he establishes himself as an actor. During the picture, he says he wants to date Jennifer Love Hewitt. At the end of the film, he's with her at the Academy Awards. He shows himself to be a natural leader. But at the beginning, they, none of them can remember his name. But over the course of the action in Tropic Thunder, when they're at the heroin factory and everything, he takes the lead. He's the one that marshals them all together. Um, even So Four Leaf, Nick Nolte's character, Four Leaf Tayback, he becomes the real war hero that he only wrote about in the book Tropic Thunder. And Cody, Danny McBride's pyrotechnic, pyromaniac character, he recovers his career because there's a point where he says, like, I really need this dude. I almost blow up Jamie Lee Curtis on Freaky Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, and he, he, he's shown winning an Academy Award as well. And uh, the Pecker, which was a role originally, um, this was one of the saddest things at the time as well. I was quite heartbroken when this came out. Um, it was, uh, unsurprisingly, the character of Rick Peck, Tug Steedman's agent, was going to be played by Owen Wilson. But Owen attempted suicide around the time of production. And right, so wow. He was replaced by Matthew McConaughey. And I remember at the time, um, it was redolent of uh, the, the 1980 picture Fame mm. has an aside where one the, the kid who wants to be a stand-up comic, he talks about when he heard about Freddie Prinze. You've all heard of Freddie Prinze Jr. Luke, you know him from Star Wars, mm -hmm. of course. Um, he talks about Freddie Prinze Sr. This is before he had the kid. And he talks about how Freddie Prinze killed himself. And he thought, how could I this character in Fame is saying, I heard about Freddie Prinze committing suicide and I didn't know how I could be me in the world I live in if he couldn't be him in the world he lived in. Yeah. And when Owen attempted suicide, I thought, how could... He's Owen Wilson. I mean, honestly, you'd think he had... you think he was entirely happy. Yeah. And it, re it, it affected me quite deeply to think this is a man who's been in my living room for the last seven, eight, maybe ten years, um, who we've all warmed to, who is there for us when we need to be picked up, uh, and to think that he was ready to end it all. And I thought, but this bloke, and not just that he's successful or wealthy, but that he has his family around him, he has so many good friends, he has um, Wes Anderson, he has Andy and Lucas brothers, he's such good pals with Stiller, and he still felt there was no way forward. Um, it was a difficult thing for me to interactive for the first time i know that sounds kind of weighty but i do think I, I do think in those terms i do think like take bill murray how many thousands of people do you think that he's saved from something quite profound well, just by yeah. being in stripes you know what yeah, i mean just, yeah, by, yeah. just somebody, by somebody somebody thinking i'm kind of at the end of my tether man if one more thing goes wrong and then they put in stripes or they put in kingpin or rushmore and they think you know that put it off for a week or i know that's i know that sounds superficial and facile but honestly I think that's the relationship that we have with comedians in particular. They're in our televisions, they're in our living rooms and in our bedrooms, and they're there when we when we so desperately need them sometimes. Mm. But anyway, so Wilson dropped out, quite rightly, to recover. Um, and this was what kick-started the McConaissance. He did Tropic Thunder, Eastbound and Down on television, Killer Joe with Billy Friedkin, and then got True Detective, and then everything started falling into place, and he got the Academy Award for Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah. But yeah, even, even the character of Rick Pecker, he begins the picture... Um, desperate to get his buddy the TiVo. By the end of the picture, he's done it. Yeah, and, uh, I know. I, I th and I think even the last one is um, Steve Coogan's character of um, Damien Cockburn, or Coburn as it's meant to be produced, but they all call him Cockburn. Um, 
in a way, he's uh, he gains validation as well, even in death, because he is the one that inspired them to make this amazing explosion disaster of a film. It's still him that set them on that path. Mm. Next time you're out there watching a comedy, just think about that. Think about, are there really arcs for these characters? Do they begin and change in any way that's meaningful? How many of the characters in the comedy change in a way that's meaningful? Yeah. Do we... Are we invested in their character? I think there's there's lovely little satirical moments as well. I wasn't sure where to put this, but Stiller's so great at quietly getting along with being utterly subversive. And one of the best examples of this is early on in the picture. Stiller's character, Tug Speedman, is playing Four-Leaf Tayback in the film Tropic Thunder. The character, Four-Leaf, loses his hands while deflecting a grenade. And so Stiller's character... Tug Speedman feels that he has to practice with the hooks for the sake of the reality of the performance because that's <laughs> what a serious actor does. So you see him and he's very serious about wearing the hooks when he's offset and uh, learning, uh, you know, he's uh, learning to live with them. Mm. And Stiller frames that so that I noticed that this is a scene in which Tug is, he has a private chef. He's just received a gift basket from his agent. He's by a swimming pool. Yeah. Uh, everything is laid on for him. He has a, a personal masseuse. Oh, but the important thing is he's really living the role by wearing the hooks. <laughs> and it's little things like that where you think, oh, yeah, that is incisive. That is dangerous. It is presenting them back to them because I'm sure that actors look at that. And again, as we said, Stiller isn't saying there isn't virtue in acting. He's saying, that's great. But let's remember, we get paid to play. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, I love that. I love that. And I, I want... Oh, and the other, another thing to say about Tropic Thunder while we're kind of summing up is that this is also the apotheosis where we talked earlier about how Stiller makes parodies, but they're not parodies. They're almost the real thing. On Tropic Thunder, he hired John Toll, the cinematographer of The Thin Red Line. Yeah, yeah. A, a, an astonishingly shot film. But additionally, um, Toll worked twice with Coppola. He did Legends of the Fall, Braveheart. As he's I was making saying, the picture for real, isn't he? He really. <laughs> yeah, is. I know. It's, it's 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 just it's just amazing to think that they give him eighty million to make a comedy, and at the same time he's making what is essentially a really good action adventure picture. Yeah, 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 completely. And um, I'm astounded we haven't managed to get get to it yet. We're summing up now, and and you know we'll we'll we'll, we'll finish. But I think a really good point to end on with Tropic Thunder is just a, a tip of the hat really to the wonderful performance I think the performance of his career of Tom Cruise because of course he's been working yeah. with Stiller through the Mission Improbable sketch for the MTV Awards <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. in the 90s so Tom's in on the gag and he's you know he obviously wants to uh, uh, you know work with Ben Stiller in that in that way and, and, and is happy to send himself up to an extent and uh, with this he's playing a Hollywood movie exec overweight bald an absolute motherfucker, uh, the likes <laughs> yeah. of which you've never seen. And my favourite clip is, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Would somebody please let me know what the game plan is? Tech, we have it handled. I, I got it. Liz Grossman. We not get money yet. Price now 100 million. You pay now, or tomorrow Simple Jack dies. Great. Uh, let me get this down. 100 million. Oh, wait. I got a better idea. Instead of 100 million, how about I send you a hobo's dick cheese? Then you kill him. Do your thing. Skin the fucking bastard. Go to town, man. Go to town. No. In the meantime, and as usual, go fuck yourself. We don't negotiate with terrorists.
Mate, that's such a good example. Then they applaud him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's another prime slice of um, still a satire. Yeah. Where it kind of flies under the radar because it's a joke and we understand it as a joke, but then you realise, oh, yeah, like you've said, Luke, like you've said so many times, you can't you can't watch Question Time because they'll get, you know, it gets to the next politician and they say, well, I think democracy is important <laughs> and everyone applauds. And you think... What? <laughs> yes. It's difficult to watch the uh, easy point scoring across uh, political discourse against the uh, in the the pop culture discourse and that scene that you've mentioned. I hadn't thought about it, but that's such a great example of how people yeah, you can get such easy wins without critical interrogation of what you're actually saying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> brilliant, yeah. brilliant. But yeah, Cruiser is, and it's one of those performances as well. Um, aside from him clearly having a whale of a time losing himself in a character in a way that he's usually unable to, um, I've studied it quite closely, kind of looking for cracks. Because I, I, when I love something too much, I, I do do that. I go back to it and think, oh, there might be some holes that I really need to be more aware of, you know, as, as a critical viewer. Yeah, sure. But um, it's again with with Cruiser's Les Grossman. It's not the typical, here I am playing against type yeah. and uh, you know, a very self-conscious disavowal of one's ego. It's a lot more than that. It's, it is a really funny performance, of, um, a really strong evocation of character. I think that one of the problems with Cruz is that we think he's so mythic in a way. Mm. We presume him to be uh, a nutcase. Yeah, I know. That's part, uh, because that of the Scientology, of but I have a feeling that on set he's... I'm just a really professional and pretty good actor. You know, Simon Pegg thinks he's all right, you know, and I don't think it's just because yeah. Simon Pegg likes being in Mission Impossible pictures. Um, I think whatever you think about his, you know, religion or his politics or whatever, or his relationships, people don't work with each other for no reason. Do you know what I mean? They must get on. and He, mu he must be a good guy to collaborate with. Yeah, and, and clearly in the case of Tropic Thunder... Um, bringing his own ideas to the table. The the dancing was his. Um, and I, I don't particularly love that aspect of the Les Grossman character, but everyone else does. Mm. When I when I bring it up to people, they say, oh my God, it was so funny when he was doing the dancing to Ludacris. And then you think, it's the sort of thing like, like um, I've had friends at work say that, and my dad said that. And I think, oh yeah, I've let myself, I've, I've kind of let my own intellect get in the way of having a good time occasionally. And yeah, him dancing to one of my favourite Luda tracks is really good. It is a lot of fun. And then it, it, during that credit sequence, you also get the delight of um, McConaughey in his having swagged his private jet, um, chuckling to himself, then looking across to the uh, the sun that he's quite disappointed yeah. with. Yeah. There's a lovely moment there, isn't there, when uh, Tug Speedman is talking about adopting a child and McConaughey says, yeah, well, at least you've got to pick yours. 
Yeah. <laughs> He's a, the Pecker is a really good character. I'm really glad as well, because it would have been good with Wilson, but we've seen Wilson and Stiller interact in the past. I think it's 12 times at this point, and even then it was uh, seven or eight. Um, it's lovely to see... I do like to see a new face come into the fold, uh, and McConaughey's great in that. Um, yeah, and if that's... You'll notice that we, we haven't talked about Zoolander 2, we haven't talked about The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, and there's also a television project which Stiller is directed in its entirety. And that's because I expect that Stiller will now become a director rather than just a director of comedies. And I think for the purpose of what we wanted to talk about today, it was that first stretch. It was, and as, yeah. as Lucas said, the, uh, the summation of everything that had come before it. It's almost as if he can now put to bed all his ideas about um, television saturation yeah. and uh, news media and indulgences of Hollywood and can do something different. But Tropic Thunder was a great a great way to sign off on that part of his career. Yeah, I think so. It was, like, like we've said, it's his magnum opus. And I think after that, he, he very much entered a second phase um, of his career. I mean, Walter Mitty felt like the sign of things to come. And I went to go see that New Year's Day when it came out. Um, it, it, it was a sort of life-affirming uh, you know, picture. And it was, it was very much that kind of vibe he was going for. Um, it was interesting, really, that he then followed up with Zoolander 2. Um, timing not quite there, because I think maybe just three or four years too late, possibly. Same with Anchorman 2. I mean, Zoolander... Zoolander number two, as I like to call it, it came 92nd at the US box office, 107 at the global box office. Mm. I went to see it. I liked it. I think it has some has some really funny gags, um, particularly the running gag about the running gag, which is essentially that Penelope Cruz is too fat to be a catwalk model, <laughs> which I find funny because there's moments where she's she's like a. They say, well, what was the problem? She says, these these beautiful voluptuous breasts. Oh, damn them, you know. Walter Mitty, that's another good example where it uses, for instance, it uses Wake Up by Arcade Fire. And you and I, we see so many pictures, we interact with so much popular culture. By the time we get to that in the picture, you kind of think, oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's an obvious choice. Yeah. You show it to someone like my old man who loves Arcade Fire but doesn't watch 100 films a year. And he goes, it was the same with Watchmen. He says, oh, the music, it was amazing. And then he gets on the plane and it's Arcade Fire. Excellent, love yeah. it. And you think, yeah, if I was 15... And that's not to say the film is unsophisticated, but if I was just... And this is one of the things I, I did love about Watermeter. I really like the film. It's not jaded. It's so earnest. It's, it's, it's unpopular. Um, it's completely unpopular to make a film as earnest as Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Yeah. And that film had been in percolation for 20 years. I remember when Carrie was going to do it at the end of the 90s. And it took until, what, 2013? I was delighted with it. I think it did everything... I think he said with it everything that he wanted to say with that text. It was funny. Good role for Patton Oswalt. Great breakout role for Kristen Wiig. And by, yeah. by, um, when I say that, what I mean is she's, she'd been a comedic lead before in Bridesmaid. But to put her in that film and say, I want as my female lead, not Gwyneth Paltrow, um, uh, not Emily Blunt, but Kristen Wiig. Uh, yeah, bold move. Shirley MacLaine's really good in it. Mm. Uh yeah, I like the film, but that wasn't what this podcast was about. This podcast was about those those first dispatches, yeah. um, which were so <laughs> ah so fantastically satirical. Um, yeah, we would have uh, mentioned, you know, if if this was a, any different focus, we'd have mentioned him in Tenenbaums and all sorts. But no, this was really oh, about gosh, yeah, yeah. Ben Stiller, the satirist, which because of that massive career he's had as the family film box office draw through Night at the Museum, Madagascar 
through uh, the Meet the Parents, Along Came Polly, Fockers stuff, I think sometimes it's easy to forget the um, the the real the the genuine comedian that's there, uh, who has a voice and something to say, and and has been saying it since the early nineties. I'm sorry I was born with this perfect bone structure, that my hair looks better done up with gel and mousse than hidden under a stupid hat with a light on it. All I ever wanted to do was make you proud of me, Pop. With what, your male modeling? Prancing around in your underwear with your wiener hanging out for everyone to see? You're dead to me, boy. You're more dead to me than your dead mother. I just thank the Lord she didn't live to see her son as a mermaid. Merman. <coughs> Merman. <coughs> Thanks for listening. Um, if you do think we missed anything, let us know. Uh, we're at onesensationalshot.com. And of course, we don't ask for money, but what we do ask for is for you to go to the One Sensational Shop. There's a link on there. It goes to our eBay shop. Uh, there's plenty of laser discs, film, film memorabilia, and others that you can uh, you can you can browse our wares and help fund the podcast through that. Star Wars figures as well. Star Wars figures. We've, if any we've of that. We've now got fig- authentic. Is it Kenner or is it Palatoy? It's the UK release. Palatoy. Seventy set. The 77 to 83 Kenner imprinted, but Palatoy released Star Wars figures. If you do want to support us, then please buy yourself a Chewbacca or a Boosh. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, by all means, get in touch. We're uh, on Twitter at One Sensational. Uh, and uh, and yeah, you can get in touch with us on OneSensationalShot.com. That's probably the best way to do it. And uh, if you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher, any place you can leave a review, please do, because it really helps people to, to find the podcast. But thanks so much indeed. Hope you enjoyed our episode on Ben Stiller and uh, speak to you soon. Say it for me one time. You make me happy.